You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting cityschurch.com. In December of 2001, I was a sophomore in college. And I was home for Christmas break. I was a student at a small college in northern Illinois, but was home in December for Christmas break back in Philly and decided that I wanted to go see a movie. And so my stepfather and my mother and I, the three of us, said we're going to go to a movie. And there wasn't a particular movie we wanted to see. We just were in the mood to go see a movie. And so we went down. And it just so happened to be the opening weekend for uh, this film you may have heard of, The Lord of the Rings. Uh, Now, i got to be honest. I was not very familiar with Lord of the Rings. I have had not read anything by Tolkien and, and not familiar with his work. I think I'd heard of The Hobbit once. Uh, so I know that breaks some of your hearts, but I was not familiar with the Lord of the Rings at all. And I thought to myself, fantasy, I don't know, this is kind of nerdy, I don't really want to see this. And uh, my stepfather was like, oh, let's give it a try. Okay, fine. So we go see the first installment of the trilogy, the Lord of the Rings. However, I didn't know it was a trilogy. I didn't realize uh, what it was about. I didn't know what to expect at all, quite frankly. First of all, the movie was three hours long. Uh, no, that it should not be. Um, that's just, that's a faux pas. Really, you get about, a, you get an hour and 38 minutes of my full attention at best. So I don't think that was wise of them. So first of all, it's three hours long and I'm just exhausted. But like, as the movie went on, I kind of got into it. I was like, oh, the storyline's good. There's like some characters here. Like, okay, I, I can get into this. It's kind of fun. And, uh, but then like the movie ends, and, like just ends very abruptly. For those of you who have seen it, you know, it's like, like, it's over, but it's not over. Like, 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 there's a lot of questions unanswered. There's a lot more to do here. Like, Frodo hasn't made it to the volcano place. Like, what? This is not, this is absurd. I, I don't understand. And so I'm very, I'm very frustrated in this moment. And I go out into the lobby of the movie theater, and I see these guys in costumes. And I figured they probably are into this. And so, um, as my guess... And so I talked to one of the guys there, and he had already seen it twice and was going to see it a third time. The movie had been out less than 24 hours. And I don't even know how that's possible. And I'm like, I'm in a cult right now. And the guy's like, oh, it's, it's going to be a trilogy. And I'm like, oh. He's like, yeah, you're going to have to wait like two years before you hear the end of the story. And I was like, this is awful. And so a year later, I went to see the second one, and two years later, I went to see the third one. I've seen them all. The third one had, you know, had an extra 30 minutes. It was three and a half hours long because they had to get that extra 30 minutes. Thank you, Mr. Peter Jackson. Um, and so just, I remember walking away from seeing Lord of the Rings and thinking, that's not how I expected it to end. And my expectations were flawed, so I, I, I didn't enjoy the story as much as others because my, my viewpoint was, was flawed. I mention this because I, I distinctly remember having a very similar feeling the first time I read through the book of Exodus as a high school student. Now, mind you, I, I grew up in a non-Christian home. My parents were not believers, so I knew almost nothing about the Bible. I came to faith in Christ as a high school student and started reading the Bible. I just started at the beginning because I figured that was where you start with a book, the beginning. I didn't know. And I get through the end of the book of Exodus and... Uh, if I've got to be honest, I, I felt similar. I'm going, wait a minute, this isn't how it's supposed to end. Like, this is not 
the end of the story. This is not the trajectory of Exodus. Like, there's so many questions that, still not an- that are unanswered. Or there's so many things to do. Like, like, in my mind, the book of Exodus is supposed to end with Moses triumphantly leading the people into the promised land and, and taking it over. And that, that should be the end of the book of Exodus in my mind as I'm reading through. But I, I came to realize later it's because I had a flawed understanding of the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus is not a movie unto itself. It's an installment in a much grander narrative. And it sets the foundation for what God will do in the coming centuries through God's people. I also had my eyes on the wrong hero. I thought Moses was the hero of the story. But I later realized that Exodus is not a movie where Moses is the main character. In fact, Moses is a background character. The the real hero of the story is Jesus. It's Jesus. And you have to sort of back up to understand that a bit. Uh, This morning we've come to the end of the book of Exodus. Uh, We've spent uh, significant chunks over the last 26 months going through the book of Exodus. But to really understand what we've learned from the book of Exodus and, and some of the things that happen in the final few chapters, we sort of have to kind of uh, rewind a little bit. And so I'd like to rewind with you all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Let's pray and we'll dive in together. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. I thank you, I thank you that you are the hero of the story and that that you have a clear plan and purpose, that you are unfolding a grand narrative to cultivate a people with whom you will dwell and be intimate with forever. Oh God, thank you. Thank you. Pray you'd use these, this, our time together in your word as a means of sanctifying us, inspiring us to, to make decisions in line with what we learn from your scriptures. And God, I pray if there's anyone here under the sound of my voice who does not know you, anyone here that is not genuinely born again, Lord, would you grant them the gift of repentance and may today you reveal yourself to them. May today they put their faith in Christ, in Christ alone, I ask. Amen. Well, we started in Exodus way back in September of 2019 and we've gone through uh, most of the book up to this point. But again, I think to fully understand it, we have to go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Way back in the Garden of Eden, God creates Adam and Eve. God creates them, and they have this incredible intimacy with God. They have friendship with God. They are able to enter into God's presence and experience him. The Bible tells us that Adam walked with God in the cool of the day. There's there's just this, this beautiful friendship that is taking place in the Garden of Eden. And of course, humanity messes it up. We sinned. The serpent, Satan, tempts Adam and Eve, and they choose to betray God. They disobey God, and the the friendship between God and humanity is fractured. Their access to the presence of God was broken. And in a moment, God will oust them from the garden, from the Garden of Eden. But before God does that, He makes a promise. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, 
It says, God says this, he's speaking to the serpent who has just tempted them. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Theologians call this moment in Genesis chapter 3 the proto-evangelium. This is the first time the gospel is ever preached. This is the first time where God says there's going to come a rescuer and he's going to crush the head of the serpent. Humanity has betrayed God and now we're under a curse. But God is going to send a rescuer, someone from the lineage of Eve, to reverse the curse. We have now been ousted and we don't have the same experience with God's presence. But that will come to an end. The rescuer will fix the problem that Adam caused. Side note. You don't go very long after our sin before God promises the solution. You can't even get out of the chapter. In my Bible, you can't even turn the page. It's as if God is saying, you sinned, and I immediately am deploying the rescue plan. I'm not going to wait thousands and thousands of years. No, you can't even turn the page, and I'm already promising you a rescuer. God shouts to us immediately after our sin. His mercy and desire to rescue. That's the God that we serve. He promises us of a savior. A rescuer would come to bruise the head of the serpent. And we know, we know that that's Jesus. You see, from the very beginning, Jesus is the hero. He is the one being promised in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And everything that happens through the entire book of Genesis and everything that happens through the entire book of Exodus is an unfolding of a grander narrative of how God intends to fulfill the promise of Genesis 3.15, to send the rescuer. Everything God is doing through Genesis and Exodus is setting up this scene where Jesus will step up and be the rescuer that we need. And if you understand that lens for Genesis and Exodus... You don't walk away with any disappointment as I did when I misunderstood Exodus. When you realize that Jesus is the hero and not Moses, you realize what God is doing in Exodus. And that is he is laying a foundation for a grander narrative that is to unfold in the centuries to come. Through Genesis, God is in the process of developing a people for himself. And through this process, he eventually establishes a covenant with a, with a man named Abraham. And he says, Abraham... I'm going to promise to give your descendants a particular plot of land, affectionately known as the promised land. Eventually, Abraham's grandson, Jacob, becomes the patriarch of the family, and he inherits this promise from God. This promise that God gave to Abraham now applies to Jacob. But before Jacob can ever take possession of the promised land, there's this wide-scale famine in the land. And through this incredibly wild set of circumstances, he ends up living in Egypt, where his son Joseph is second in command of the most prosperous nation on the globe at that time. And Jacob settles in Egypt with his family there. That's where the book of Genesis ends. Fast forward 400 years, and that's where the book of Exodus then begins. When the book of Exodus begins, 400 years has passed since the ending of Genesis. The Israelites are still in Egypt, and certainly they have been there far longer than they ever anticipated they would be there. 
Now they are not just a family, they have grown into a nation, several hundreds of thousands strong. But there's a major problem. The king of Egypt, Pharaoh, has enslaved them. They are slaves in Egypt. The people cry out to God, God hears them, and he sends them a rescuer, Moses, to rescue them from Egyptian tyranny. And through this unbelievable, miraculous, supernatural, and severe set of events in the early chapters of the book of Exodus, God uses Moses as the instrument to deliver the people out of Egyptian tyranny. There's all sorts of stuff happening in these early chapters, right? There are these, these, these ten plagues culminating with the, the tenth plague, which, is, uh, which has this monumental Passover event. And then there's the crossing of the Red Sea, and then there's Pharaoh's men chasing after the Israelites, and Pharaoh's men are drowning later in the Red Sea. I mean, God is demonstrating his power in profound ways. The early chapters of Exodus are way more dramatic than anything Hollywood or Peter Jackson has to offer us. <clears throat> Side note, one of the greatest characters, the two attributes of God that are seemingly on display more than anything else in the early chapters of Exodus are God's sovereignty and God's goodness. God is in control of everything. There is nothing that happens outside of God's control. And God is good. All that God does is good. And those two go hand in hand because one without the other is frightening to me. Like a God who is sovereign but not good is terrifying. A God who could do whatever he wants, however he wants, whatever he wants, but is not good, that's a frightening proposition. And a God who is good but is not sovereign, like he's good but doesn't actually have the power to do good things, kind of useless. But our God is both sovereign and good. He controls everything and nothing happens outside of God's control. And everything that God does is always good. Even when we don't understand it, God is always good. Sometimes people point out things God does and they don't think it's good. Or they say, God can't do that. In Exodus, the common example is the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. God intentionally hardened Pharaoh's heart. And people go, that doesn't seem good. If God does something, it is good. And if we look at something God has done and we don't think is good, if we disagree with God, it is not God who is wrong. So if we see God doing something and we go, that's not good. No, no, it is good. Your understanding of what is good is flawed and must change. God is sovereign and he is always good. And the Israelites here in the early chapters of Exodus are the beneficiaries of God's sovereignty and goodness. Eventually, they make it out of Egypt, hundreds and thousands of them, into the wilderness. And they make it all the way to the base of Mount Sinai. And we see this Amazing event that takes place in Exodus 19. In Exodus 19, there's this incredible moment where they have an opportunity to enter into God's presence. God is on the mountain, and God says, I'm going to blow a trumpet, and when the trumpet blasts, I want you to come up the mountain. I mean, this is the thing they've been waiting for, right? Ever since we were ousted from the Garden of Eden, we've been waiting for the moment to get back into the presence of God. Here is the moment God has made it available to them. 
But when the trumpet blasts, they're afraid of God. They tremble and they say no. We think we know better than you, God. We're not going to go up. This is a heartbreaking moment in Scripture for me. Uh, Pastor Jonathan preached a sermon on Exodus 19 way back on December 19th, 2019. So he did Exodus 19 on December 19 in 2019. And uh, it's probably my favorite sermon in our, in our Exodus series up to this point. I've, I've, uh, I've, I've gone back and listened to it multiple times. You can find it on our website and our app. You can find all of them on our website and the app. And Pastor Jonathan does a great job in that sermon of highlighting this moment where God calls them and they disobey. And then immediately, though, however, we see God making plans. It's almost as if God is saying, okay, if you're not going to come up with me, then I'm going to go down to you. And this plan begins to unfold of how God will go dwell amongst the people if they will not come to him. Remember, though, this is not merely about God and the Israelites. This is foreshadowing a grander narrative, um, the moment where Jesus will come down to us. If they won't come to me, I will go to them. We could not reach heaven without him. So Jesus brings heaven down to us. In the next moment of Exodus, we see in chapters 20 to 23, God gives the, the Ten Commandments and the case law. And then in Exodus 24, God establishes the, the covenant with the people. And then God gives Moses these extremely detailed plans and blueprints and instructions for the dwelling place. God is saying, if I'm going to come down this mountain and dwell amongst my people, I need you, I want you to build a dwelling place. And here are the instructions. I want you to build them precisely like this. And while God is giving Moses these blueprints, Mo Moses is having this amazing, glor gl glorious mountain time, uh, mountaintop experience. He's, he's encountering the glory, glory of God. But while he is there, he learns that the people down at the base of the mountain have done something wicked. They have created an idol, a golden calf. They took all of their gold, they melted it down, and they create a golden calf, and they are worshiping the golden calf. And they're saying, this is Yahweh. This is our God who brought us out of Egypt. And so this glorious mountaintop moment that Moses is having turns into lament and intercession. And God is about to wipe out the Israelites. He's going to kill them all. And God would not have been wrong to do so. God would not be wrong to bring his wrath upon sinners. The Israelites or us here in this room today. God would not be wrong to pour out his wrath. So God's going to kill him, and Moses appeals to God on, in two ways. First, he says, on the basis of your reputation, he says this in Exodus 32, 12, why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did God bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them? Moses is going, God, what are the Egyptians going to think? It's going to impugn your reputation with them. And then in the next verse, he makes another appeal. He goes, God, remember your promises. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self. He's like, listen, these people, they don't deserve your mercy at all. But, but you made a promise to their, to their ancestors that you would be faithful to their descendants. God, would you, would you fulfill the promise you made to the patriarch, to Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob? These guys don't deserve it. But would you be merciful to them because of your promise to, to the patriarchs you made oh so long ago? And on the basis of God's own glory and his faithfulness to his own promises, he chooses not to kill the people of Israel. And 
he renews the covenant. Even though he knows he's going to be in covenant with an unfaithful people, he chooses to renew this covenant. And he commissions Moses to go build the tabernacle. Even though you are wicked, stiff-necked people, I will still come dwell among you. So Moses goes and eventually they start to build the tabernacle. And that starts in Exodus 35. And so last week, Pastor Jonathan took us up to Exodus 34. And we pick up the story now in Exodus 35. Exodus 35 verse 21 says this. Exodus 35, verse 21, and they came, everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him and brought the Lord's contribution to to be used for the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the holy garments. So the people are stirred. Yeah, we, we we, we want to now respond appropriately. We want to sacrifice and do what we need to do in order to make sure the that the tabernacle is built. Even after all that's happened, even after they broke the covenant, God renews the covenant and he stirs in their heart. And then many of them jump in. Look at the, toward the end of Exodus 35, verses 24, 25 says this. 24, 25. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver or bronze brought it to the Lord's contribution. And everyone who possessed acacia wood or of any use in the work brought it. Verse 25. And every skillful woman spun with her hands, and they all brought what they had spun. You see throughout chapters 35 and then also into 36, you basically get this picture where, like, the significant amount of the people, they start jumping in. Like, they're going to start bringing their, their resources, their, 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 uh, their, their, their uh, wealth, their, their time, their talents, their skills. And everyone jumps in in the process of building the tabernacle. And so you get this sense all throughout chapters 35 and 36. In fact, the people gave so much. At one point, Moses had to stop them. In verse 36, uh, chapter 36, verse 6, Moses says to them, okay, we, we've got enough. Like, like all right, you, you've, you've shown that you're, you're, in, you're in on this. We've got more than we need. Now we just need to continue to manage this project. In the second half of chapter 36, and then all the way through chapter 38, the scripture begins to describe a very detailed process for various components of the tabernacle being built and then set in place. It's this very detailed construction process that's, that's being out, uh, laid for us out in chapters 36 and 38. Then the book of chapter 39 is devoted to the documenting of how they made the garments for the high priest. And they made them perfectly in accordance with the instructions that, that were given in Exodus 28. Pastor Jonathan preached from that passage a few weeks ago for us as well. And remember, the high priest wore white robes under these outer layers and under a breastplate, and the high priest had a turban of sorts, and on the forehead had the Lord's name. It said, holy to Yahweh, or holy to the Lord. So 39 is giving us a picture of them following the instructions exactly how God had given them earlier in Exodus 28. And then we come to the last chapter, Exodus 40. We made it. We're there. Last chapter. In the first 10 verses of chapter 40, they're basically putting it all together. You kind of get the the picture that there's like different teams building different components, doing different things. And now here in the first 10 verses of chapter 40, they're kind of bringing everything together. They're arranging things. They're kind of, it all all starts to come together here. 
and they're finalizing the construction process. Then in verses 11 to 16 in chapter 40, you have this moment, it kind of is a break from construction, where God reminds them that they are going to consecrate the priest. Aaron and his sons are going to be ordained to the priesthood, and with this we have the establishment of the priesthood that would continue for generations. Then from verses 17 to 31 of chapter 40, they're starting to put up the curtains, they're arranging the furniture, and kind of doing the the last finishing touches on the tabernacle, and they complete the project. Throughout this entire section, there's one phrase used over and over and over again that's really important. It's the phrase, and they did everything the Lord commanded. This phrase is used multiple times here in the the second half of chapter 40. In verse 21, it says they brought the ark into the tabernacle as the Lord had commanded. In verse 23, they arranged the bread on the table as the Lord commanded. In verses 24 and 25, they set up tables and lamps as the Lord commanded. They burned the fragrant incense as the Lord commanded. This phrase is frequent over and over and over. In fact, from chapters 35 to 40, this phrase is used 21 times. From 35 to 40, 21 times. It is as if Israel finally gets it. They go, oh, we should actually obey God's commands. And then we come to the final few verses of Exodus, chapter 40, the verses that Eric read for us a little earlier. You look at verse, chapter 40, verse 34. It says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting, because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they would not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and the fire was in it by night. And in the sight of all the house of Israel, throughout all their journeys. So they finish the tabernacle, and when it's complete, the glory of God, the presence of God descends in this form of a cloud and enters the tent of meeting. And now, anywhere they would travel for the better part of the next four decades, they would take this tabernacle with them. Whenever God's presence would be lifted, they would pack up and they, would, they had a particular process for how to do it and they would move. But if God's presence was there, they would, they would, not, they would stay. Instantly, though, once the presence of God is in the tent of meeting, Moses cannot enter in. And it's not clear to us here why, but we will later discover that there's very specific protocols for whomever could enter in. Not even Moses, the mediator between God and the Israelites, could enter in. In the book of Leviticus, we would see these very particular processes that only one person could enter. It was the high priest. And he could only enter on one day a year. One guy, one time, one day a year could enter into the presence of God. For 364 days of the year, no one could. For most, for all of the year, most people could not. You get this sense that the tabernacle was not enough to solve the problem that Adam caused in the Garden of Eden. 
although we see all throughout Exodus all of these connections between the tabernacle and Eden. Tabernacle is calling back to symbolism and imagery from Eden. You get the sense that, oh, the tabernacle is going to recreate Eden and we're going to walk with God as Adam did. But the tabernacle is not capable of doing that. But that's not a bug, that's a feature. The tabernacle, as valuable as it is to the Israelites, is not intended to solve the problem Adam caused. I remember reading this as a high school student thinking that it would, realizing that it does not. There's still a separation between God and people. The thing that was lost when Adam sinned has not been recovered because of the construction of the tabernacle. The Holy of Holies is the section of the tabernacle where the fullness of God's presence is. And that's where we want to be. That's where I want to be. I want to be right in the center of the presence of God. I want to experience him and enjoy him. But we can't go in. The Israelites can't go in. Only one guy once per year on one day of the year. And the rest can never enter. This was a privilege that was lost when Adam sinned. If you're an Israelite, certainly this is an amazing thing. That the presence of God is dwelling in the midst of your people. But you still can't enter in. You still can't be face to face with God. I mean, there's great value. Every time the Israelites would travel all around the wilderness, they, they, would, they would be near other nations. And pagan nations could see the Israelites in the wilderness and see, see the cloud or the fire. And they could see that the glory of God is with the Israelites. The people would know God is with them. All these pagans knew that God is with the Israelites, but the Israelites themselves could not fully experience the presence of God. Again, this was an, a privilege lost because of Adam. But here's the thing. The tabernacle was never designed to fix this problem. It was designed to foreshadow and lay the foundation for the person that would solve the problem. His name is Jesus. Exodus is not a story on how we get back into the presence of God. Exodus is the first installment of a grander story. A foundation is being laid. And in that grander story, Jesus will step in. And he will bruise the head of the serpent. The story of how we get back to the garden is not in the book of Exodus. The story of how we get back to the garden culminates at the cross where Jesus died. Jesus is the one who comes to fix what Adam broke. Eventually, the Israelites do go into the promised land. Right? God establishes them as a nation, and they, be, they become a nation. Jesus is born into that nation, and of course, Jesus then becomes the Savior. Jesus lives a perfect life and dies a brutal death. He, die, he lives the life that you and I should have lived but could not and he dies a death that we deserve to die. He dies in our place. And for anyone here, if you believe in Jesus, if you trust in Christ, you are invited into the presence of God through the person of Christ Jesus. Anyone who places their faith in Christ will be rescued and invited back into the garden. We get a, we get a glimpse of that here on this side of eternity. But there will come a day on the other side of eternity where we see him in his full glory face to face. 
There's a, there's a portion of scripture that gives us insights into that moment. And I want to read a bit from that. Revelation chapter 21. In Revelation 21, the dwelling place of God is being described. Here is the final destination. Revelation 21 chapter th- verse 3 says this. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Then later in Revelation 21 and verse 22, John the apostle writing as he sees this, he says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. He's saying, I see this glorious city, but there's no temple in this city because God himself is the temple and his glory fills the whole city. There's no need for a temple because God himself, his whole glory fills this city. And this is a city in which we will live. We will see the fullness of his glory. This city is our final destination. And in Revelation, the author of Revelation, John the Apostle, uses imagery from the tabernacle to describe some things that we will experience as believers in the future, in, the, in eternity future to come. Throughout Exodus 20, from 25 to 40, we see these descriptions of the tabernacle, and we see quite a bit of talk about the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies is depicted in two clear ways in Exodus. One, it is square. Square. Two, it's all gold. Right, the, the covenant, the poles, the cherubim, everything is pure gold. These are the two descriptors of the Holy of Holies. This is the, the place in their tabernacle where the presence of God in its fullness was manifested. And anyone there could experience God and see the fullness of his glory. And of course, they cannot go in. So the place where you see the fullness of God and you experience it, and all of, you experience all of God's glory is this place called the Holy of Holies that is square and gold. It's the exact language of Revelation 21 that John uses to describe the city that we will live in with Jesus. Revelation 21, it says, the city lies four square. Its length is the same as its width. And then in verse 18, it says this, the wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold. John is saying, there's a city we're going to live in. We're all going to live there. Those of us who believe in Jesus We're going to experience the fullness of the glory of God in this amazing city. And it will be comparable to the holy of holies that they could not enter into. But we will be able to enter into. Church, this is a glorious privilege that we will be in the holy of holies face-to-face with our God forever, forever. And the knowledge of this glory inspires us and strengthens us as we face the afflictions and difficulties of this life. The Apostle Paul understood this very well in Romans 8, verse 18. He says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He's like, this life is hard. Life is very hard sometimes. We face very real challenges and difficulties and afflictions. But let me tell you something Paul says. The afflictions we face here, they are nothing 
when they are compared to the glory that awaits us. This is hard. Saints, church, look forward to his glory. It will strengthen you in the midst of the afflictions. I pray for all of us that the realities of Revelation 21 would govern how we live our lives every single day. Ask yourself, if I'm going to be in the holy of holies forever, how should that impact how I live my life today? God, would you answer that question for us? Would you give us wisdom to know how to live that out? There are two other quick things from Revelation I want to note. Revelation 19 makes mention that believers will wear white robes. And then in Revelation 22 verse 4, it says that we will see his face. Speaking of Jesus, we will see his face. This is what Moses wanted to see in Exodus. I want to see your face. I want to see the fullness of your glory. And Moses could not. But we will see it. And it says in 22 verse 4, Revelation 22 verse 4, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. So we're wearing white robes and the name of God is on our foreheads that reminds you of someone from the book of Exodus, the high priest who wears white robes and has the name of Yahweh on his forehead. The privileges that the high priest enjoyed are now being given to those in Christ. The privilege to enter into the Holy of Holies with confidence. To experience and enjoy the fullness of God's glory is given to those who believe. We inherit this because we are in Christ. We inherit the incredible privileges of the high priest. We will be able to enter into the Holy of Holies. But not just for one day a year, church. Forever. We will see him face to face. We will see our rescuer in all his glory. And that is a privilege that was purchased by Jesus for us at the cross. At the cross, Jesus pays the price. He pays our debts so that we could get back to the garden. So we could get back to the place where we can experience the fullness of God's presence. So that we could experience and enjoy the glory of God. And that's why we come to this table every single week. To celebrate what Jesus accomplished. We are the beneficiaries of an incredible purchase. We come to this table each week to celebrate, to remember that we will see his face. We will see him in his full glory. And he purchased it for us at the cross. This meal is a meal primarily for the members here of City's Church, but it is open to all who believe. If you are a believer in Jesus, you are welcome to participate and celebrate with us this morning. If you are here this morning, you are not a believer. If you are not 100% sure that you have put your faith in Christ, I would ask you when the elements come, just let them pass. But don't let the moment pass. If you are not a believer, I implore you, I encourage you, Take Christ today. Put your faith in him. If you don't know what that means or you want to have a conversation about that, come on up after the service. I'd love to talk to you about that this morning. Trust in Christ and Christ alone. For those of you who are believers, God loves you. 
and we're going to see him face to face. The, this is the body and blood of Jesus. His body is the true bread. His blood is the true drink. Let us serve you.